Hey, this is Brian Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. The show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups, quality handcrafted guitar pickups out of Detroit City. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. Okay, our guest today is Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's, the first and only female band to both write and record a number one hit record. Her new book is called All I Ever Wanted, and we chat about that, the songs that make her skin vibrate, and a long-standing question I've had about a Go-Go song that she wrote back in the 80s. Check it out. Kathy, welcome to the show. This is a genuine privilege for me. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to do it as well. Thank you. Now, your new book, Kathy, is called All I Ever Wanted, and uh, I personally found it to be a very compelling, unvarnished, and courageous account of your life thus far. I, I finished it over the holidays, and, and I, I loved it. I made faces as I read it. That's, I can tell. <laughs> I, I enjoy the book. It's literally a roller coaster ride. You know, reading about your experience, for example, in Atlanta after you had just joined the Go-Go's made my mouth go into like a, a circle, like Mr. Bill from SNL, if you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrifying, but it was a fantastic book. It gives you a completely warts and all look at your childhood, teenage years, how you came to join the Go-Go's and the absolutely insane roller coaster ride that ensued from there. And there's just so many great stories about LA and in the late 70s and early 80s. And I think one of the things I liked about it the most was that it was just such a great view from a, a musician's perspective of what happens when they get into town and begin the journey from scratch. Yeah, I I felt like when I actually got a book deal with UT Press, which I was thrilled about. I mm -hmm. mean, I, I think I was crying and laughing at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I was most excited about was that they were going to let me tell my story and of course that would include the go-go's because it's a memoir it's a slice of life you know a lot of people are like oh you left out so much you left out and i'm like but yeah it's not my entire autobiography life story or the go-go's history it's a span i picked that span for a specific reason it's a story arc where it follows the very a very classic structure of storytelling and made sense to me to, to begin and end when I did. But um, I was just really excited that it wasn't going to be like, oh, no, give us more dirt or tell us, you know. It's like I didn't shy away from anything salacious or, no. or real, but that wasn't that wasn't the, the thing about the story. The story was it just needed to be it needed to be real and it needed to be authentic. And that's that's what I wanted. I wanted just to to come up on the page and be be me and be honest and hope that it would connect with readers and mission accomplished it did and and you know you, you hit it on the head there um the vulnerability and that's why i called it courageous was that the book is written from a very vulnerable point of view it's not smug it's not cocky it's this is you know the warts and all account of what really happened and i'm not you know positioned in the most favorable light <laughs> for some of the book but i think that readers will appreciate that yeah i mean i, I don't think uh you know, I think if you're a really big star or celebrity, people, you know, might want to just read whatever it is, whatever fluff comes out of your mouth. But I don't think I was in that position where I, I had that luxury of just doing a fluff piece about mm -hmm. me. I think it, it had to resonate on a very personal and human level to, to really kind of get the reader's trust. And, and 
most of my favorite memoirs are not from famous celebrities. They're from people that went through a very human struggle mm-hmm. and were able to talk about their lives openly and honestly. And that that was my template, much more so than any typical rock memoir or anything like that. You know, yeah. I, I just I did love Just Kids by Patti Smith and Bob Dylan's Chronicles, mm-hmm. but those were probably the only two music memoirs that that I found as inspirational and and most of the other ones were just literary memoirs yeah i agree they can be bland and i think that you know they're written with a goal in mind often i've read a lot of these books and and unfortunately that's what happens but with yours i will say that it's a gripping book it's it's real yeah and i've had people that said that they but they picked it up expecting to really just kind of be interested in the stuff with the Go-Go's, like pulling back the curtain on what it's like to be in a band mm-hmm. that starts from nothing and goes all the way to the top. And that they found, much to their surprise, that it was the journey getting to there and the the loss of it that resonated the most with them. And that kind of made me happy because, again, I wasn't really trying to write the Go-Go story. It just happens to be part of my story. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to that end, I think that you're actually quite gracious in the way that you relay the story because, you know, the way that the band broke up was, I was very surprised to to read that. I knew the band broke up and I knew that Belinda went off on her own, but I didn't know how that whole thing came about. You know, you, you could have been sore about that, but I thought that you did a great job in recounting that just very factually and, and without any malice or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't write it to, to grind axes or, or you know, vent or anything. I really wrote it to kind of just tell my story. And one thing I've learned about myself, and I think it's something that I really like and I can be proud of about myself, is that I have a capacity for forgiveness mm-hmm. that I've seen play out over and over again, whether it's from with my mom or with people that have done me wrong or, you know, let me down or disappointed. I, I don't know. I, I've, I've seen over time, I've started appreciating that. And um, I knew that it wasn't going to be a, a hit piece at all in any way. And I also think that's boring. I, I think without naming names, I've seen, I've read books mm-hmm. where the writers seem to really be using it as a way to kind of, and here's my side, you know, and, yeah. and I, I really didn't want that. Was that anticipated, do you think, by anybody before your book came out? (laughs) Well, (laughs) when I started the book, I had been fired from the band. I Mm -hmm. wasn't in the band when I started it. And I actually was worried because I thought, what's it going to be like? To I mean, I I had to sue them. They they not only fired me when I'd broken my wrist, Mm -hmm. but then they tried to take it so that all the, the goodwill I had built up for 30 years, 35 years, that I would get nothing. That's right. The the narrative in, in some of the media was like, oh, she quit the band and sued them. And that's not what happened. They kicked me out and then tried to deprive me of my ownership in a business that I helped build. And that was the only reason. So anyway, I was like right in the middle of that. And I was like, what the heck am I going to do when I get to the stuff about the go-go's? You know, what's it going to feel like, these mm-hmm. people? And it was actually really amazing because what I what I found as I was writing was that number one it wasn't personal you know I was just 
kind of the one that it worked at. I, there had been a, a, it was a manifestation of a dysfunction that had been present for a long time. And I, I kind of thought this wasn't really personal. It was just kind of the situation made it where I'm the one that got the brunt of it. And then the other thing I just felt like was that I don't, I'm not going to let what happened and what I'm going through now take away the joy and the, the amazing adventure of what we did together. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to do that. And so as I started reliving, joining the band, playing those first gigs, you know, making the first album, going on tour, the things that we did that I did to make it fun and be a joy, those things helped me heal. And when I got back in the band, when they asked me back, mm-hmm. I didn't have any grudges. I didn't have any, like... I wasn't harboring any ill will. And a lot of it was because I think I had been, I was writing this book and it was kind of just putting me square into the positive, good things about the band. Which is another thing I like about this documentary that we came out with. I think that that celebrates and uplifts the band legacy and accomplishments and joyful parts and just kind of crazy, you know, the magnitude of what happened was just really big. And a lot of that gets overshadowed by like, oh, they imploded, you know, oh, egos, drugs, money, they just blew up. And, you know, that that kind of got to the point where that part of the story of the Go-Go's had really overshadowed the, the legacy, the accomplishments, the fun. Mm-hmm. So good for you for shining a light on that aspect of it. And like I said earlier, you, your, your portrayal of all of those times could have had tinges of, of bitterness and you could, you know, that would have sullied the whole thing. I'm so glad that you didn't do it that way because, you know, I have read other books uh, where that was the case. Yeah, me too. And I don't like it. You no, know, I. I don't like reading about people's grudges because we all know there's another side. You know, we all know that. Mm-hmm. And I don't like reading a litany of of awards or famous people, you know, Mm -hmm. like I just don't like name droppy books. And I thought I was very uncomfortable writing about any kind of person, you know, that I like. And of course, that's what the press picks up on. Like, oh, she talks about Rod Stewart and John Belushi. And and I, I was uncomfortable because I thought I don't, I'm not trying to exploit any of these people who are way more famous than me for my book. But at the same time, in the con- there was a lot of people I didn't talk about, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And the context kind of, sometimes it fit as part of the story and gave, it helped me paint a scene with um, a lot more vivid by, by putting the, you know, if it happened, I wrote about it. Yeah. At the same time, I didn't want to like be trading on it. No, that that definitely comes across. And, you know, one of the coolest things in the book was when you mentioned uh, Lenny Kravitz, you know, this this young black guy sitting on the steps of the A&M building having a difficult time because they wanted to, you know, the music business wanted to position him as like an R&B soul guy and he was a rocker. And uh, yeah. you, don't, you don't say who it was until the very end. And I was thinking, like, who's this guy? And then that's so awesome. It's Lenny Kravitz and then Craig Ross at the very end of the book. Like everything came together. It was really cool. I know. It's so cool. And uh, and this happened, um, let's see, I guess Craig joined Lenny after the the book ends in 1990. So mm-hmm. yeah, this, this happened in the 90s. But I just love that when I met Craig and, and I knew, heard Lenny was looking for a guitarist, I was, that's just such a great story. It doesn't fall within the time frame of this one. Mm-hmm. But if I do another memoir, it would, it's such a great story how Craig got into that band. And a lot of it 
a lot of it hinged on the goodwill that Lenny felt towards me for meeting mm. me in the first book. Because when we, Craig and I went and we were shooting pool at this place, um, he was my roommate, mm-hmm. which I think I do talk about in my book. Yep. But a couple of years later, we, we'd, we'd go every afternoon and shoot pool for a few hours at this place. And one time Lenny was there and I went up to him and I said, hey, do you remember me? And I'm Kathy from the Go-Go's. And mm-hmm. he was just, oh, my God, you were always so cool to me. And, of course, by then he was a big star and yeah. I'd never seen him since. And he's like, oh, yeah, you, you were so cool. And I go, yeah, well, hey, my friend here should be your guitar player. And he's like, <laughs> really? Let's go meet him. And, um, you know, so it's kind of one of those cool full circle things, like the the, the goodwill I built up with him in that first meeting kind of helped open the door to this this relationship that's been ongoing with Craig and Lenny for decades now. Yeah, that's an amazing story. You should have put that in the book. That's fascinating because he is a killer guitar <laughs> player, Craig is. Oh, I know. And and the minute I heard the minute I heard Lenny was looking I remember I remember going home and saying to Craig, That's your gig. That's your gig. In fact I even got a cassette of Craig playing and I gave it to the Go Go's manager at the time and I said, Can you get this to Lenny Kravitz? And that was the last we ever heard of it. Wow. So it was just this weird Kismet thing. No, it's a great story. I got a lot of great stories that would make a really cool second book. Mm-hmm. And I'll do that one day if I, you know, God willing that I live long enough. I'll definitely do that because I loved writing a memoir. And there's this another whole journey that is different, but just as compelling, especially people that are invested in the story. There's this whole other thing about what happens with my mom Mm. that's kind of crazy and just all kinds of other stuff. But I would probably do the second memoir more like a collection of essays rather than a linear Mm -hmm. progression like I did with the first one. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, getting ahead of myself. No, it sounds like <laughs> you, you certainly should do that. There should definitely be a sequel. You've got a lot of stuff there for sure. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be very interested. Like I said, I, I genuinely did enjoy this book. It stayed with me. So congratulations. Really well done. Thank you. Yeah. There is a line. We were talking about this earlier. There is a line before we get into the, the songs that make Kathy Valentine's skin vibrate here. There is a line at the beginning of your book that reads, Music has calibrated the imbalances of my life for as long as I can remember. And that line immediately grabbed me because as serious music fans, we, we sometimes we struggle to express how truly important music is to us as people. And that can be frustrating. It's hard to articulate. And I, f- I felt like when I read that line, you just, you nailed it when you said that. It was just a perfect way to say it. And I mean, you continue to do the same throughout the book. And I think that that's why I related to it so much. I just thought that was great. I love that line. And it's funny when you, when you think back on, there's, there's things about music that I, and I'm, I have to like preface this with a kind of a funny aside. Like I'm kind of a disappointing person in terms of, I've had boyfriends and I even married a guy for a while who thought that I would be into just like talking about music all the time. And I'm actually, I actually don't. And I actually rarely listen to music. Like, you know, I like silence a lot. I really, you know, I don't get in my car and turn on the radio and and it doesn't mean I don't ever turn on music, but I'm not one of these people that just always got music playing and stuff. So it's kind of funny, but, um, I, what I do love about music is, number one, I love how if you like something, it's one of the few things in life, like 
if you say to someone, oh, do you like this dress? And they go, oh, not really. Like, it kind of offends you. Or Mm -hmm. if somebody says they don't like your haircut, it kind of offends you. But if somebody doesn't like the music you like, it doesn't even, you don't care. It doesn't make you go, oh, well, I don't like it now either. I, (laughs) I love that about music. It's like, if you don't like it or you like it, it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. That's true. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's kind of, I love that because most other things, you kind of take it personally or you feel offended or embarrassed or something. I, especially social media where people will kind of come, come clean and go, okay, I admit it. I always thought so-and-so was overrated and, uh, <laughs> and it's just really, or, or I've never got what people like about so-and-so and it's kind of fun to, see that because i think we all have these like oh i never i don't see what the big fuss is so anyway there's that but the other thing i love is how there's this weird pride like i remember i think i write in the book about one of my earliest memories of loving music was being in a in a restaurant and they had those little jukeboxes on Mm. at each table and you could kind of like i'd be with my mom and her boyfriend and you know just kind of kind of feeling like a tag along and it would almost be like, here's some quarters, you know, go, <laughs> keep yourself busy. And picking the songs and feeling kind of proud of your choices and th- this weird thrill of finding something that you wanted to hear yeah. and having the control over hearing. Because, you know, we didn't have a stereo. We didn't have lots of records or anything. So I just have these funny memories of music from way, way back in time where where it just meant something really important. Well, it it did. I think that, you know, music was everything back then for me. And now it's just kind of, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, I think that with technology in the digital age, it's just one thing. When I was a kid, it was everything. I mean, I I was fully committed to music. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I write in the book about being in like the fifth or sixth grade and you know, they had music classes back then. Like, they don't have that in the States anymore. No mm. schools have music classes. You can join the orchestra or something, but it's not like a part of your education. But back then it was, and they would let you bring, like, your two favorite records. And I just remember, like, agonizing over it. Like, <laughs> what do I bring? What do I bring? Because it made this statement about who you were, you know? Oh, it totally does. And, you know, you and I were talking earlier about all my favorite people are broken and music represents you to a degree, you know, especially when you're a younger person, you kind of wear that on your sleeve, like a badge. Yes. And I think I also wrote this in my book was, it was the first thing I remember bonding with other people over because Mm -hmm. I felt like so different. All the people I knew had different family situations they had brothers and sisters and they had a mom and they had like nuclear families that were intact and they lived in houses whereas i lived in rented apartments and i always just felt like this weirdo and bonding on music was the first time i felt like i was a lot like i i had something in common with with people yeah Yeah. so it was huge well, that's a funny thing. I mean, you, you go to a party and um, you meet somebody else who's a huge music fan. You get to cut through all that circular bullshit at the beginning of the conversation. Like, where do you work? You know, who? where do you live? And you're you're in the corner talking about whether Rubber Soul was more important than Revolver, you know? It, like right away, you just, you're part of the same tribe. You, you just, um, you fast forward through all the introductory stuff as music fans right away and you develop this bond. Yeah. Yeah. And like, even as an older person, like when there's like these big festivals that we used to have in the before times. Um, 
and like the idea I forgot like my because my daughter would always want to go to these festivals and stuff and I'd be like uh you know been there done that but then I would remember like there's something kind of amazing about being in a, a, a concert like a big concert with thousands of people that are like all digging the same thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of which, how was rock and Rio for that experience for you? Well, um, rock and Rio was, was just such a trip. I mean, but there was a lot going on on a lot of different levels, you know, for me. I mean, I was, I had come off of a, a period where I was desperately afraid of losing the band because mm-hmm. Jane had quit. And then instead of breaking up, we had stayed together. I had moved to guitar, which Mm -hmm. was like my favorite number one instrument. And I had this completely, I was completely in denial and it was all false. But I I was in, in this mind space where I haven't lost it. The most important thing in my life, not only have I not lost it, but there we maybe we'll go on and be bigger than ever and here we are playing with all these bands that are huge playing to hundreds of thousands of people which we had never really done Mm -hmm. so i was kind of in this bubble of i mean i was all through the go-go's as much as it was all amazing you have to understand i was also very wrapped up in me Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. I, i was you know ages 22 basically 26 and I was not a very mature individual I had not grown up much and um, everything was about my security my safety not losing this this is the best thing in the world I don't have to have a day job I'm in a band I gotta keep it nobody would be stupid enough to screw this up this is the best you know it's all about me getting to keep what I had Mm. I don't think anyone would blame you for that Kathy yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, understandable. Mm. But especially if you knew where I come from, which is why I wanted that in the book. I wanted mm. that context of, I don't think anybody would understand why that band was so profoundly important to me or why I was so devastated and lost and obliterated when I lost it mm. if, if I didn't have that context. Yeah. Okay, so before we get into your the, the songs that make your skin vibrate, Kathy, I have a music geek question for you as a GoGo's fan. Mm-hmm. If will you indulge me on this? Of course. So, so this is something I always wondered about ever since the 80s when I first heard the song. So the song Head Over Heels, I think you wrote that with Charlotte Caffey, right? Uh-huh. So whose idea, I've always wondered this, it's a stupid question, but I got to ask you, whose idea was it to put that hand clap in Head Over Heels? Uh, it's so funny because only one other person has asked me that. Mm. So I've got my answer ready because I had to <laughs> think about it. And I can't say with 100% certainty, but I can say with probably 80% certainty that that was Martin Russian's idea. Okay. He was our producer and he has passed away. Tragically, I never got to see him or talk to him again after we made that record but martin really liked this um the lynn drum machine no not not the lynn the overheim that's what that sound was and you know we had to kind of come to a truce that we didn't want a bunch of synthesized you know drum machine sounds on our record and he had to you know accept that but we also had to accept that he might have some ideas here and there 
So that I think that was his idea to put it there. Mm. And I'm not quite sure what made it. I think it's on the, the fifth beat. It, it, that's, see, that's, that's the, the weird thing. Measure. That that is the weird thing, <laughs> Kathy, is that it's so it's used in such an unorthodox way, but it totally works because when you first hear it, you think, "What was that?" And then it disappears, <laughs> and then it comes back again on the fifth beat, and you're like, "It shouldn't be on the fifth beat." And it, where is it now? Like it's just it's really cool, actually. I've always thought that. it is good, and it's really funny live. Still, you can tell like the diehard fans that they know where to put it. Like oh, they'll, really? they'll do it with their yeah. And you'll see other people like not know where to put it or not even know that it's there. <laughs> this funny thing about music. That's cool. Well, thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Sure. Okay. So now your list of songs. So you start with David Bowie and Rebel Rebel. So why does this make your skin vibrate, Kathy Valentine? There was something about, I was, I think I was 15 and I had been playing guitar, but I, so it was right at the very beginning when I was trying to put bands together. Mm-hmm. Such a rock and roll fan. And there was a, a, band, a cover band that came from Dallas. They played four sets a night. Mm-hmm. And I think like their second or third set was all Bowie songs. Mm-hmm. And I was obsessed because I had never seen Bowie at that point. I'd never gotten to see him. So I would, oh, and they were a good band. So there was something about the care, and, and of course I had the record too, but getting to hear it like every every few weeks live by this band mm-hmm. and, and hear like a live version of the song that I love. But it was not only the guitar, which I just love the guitar riffs. You know, when I, that was one of the first things I learned. And it's not yeah. that hard, you know, it's just so, what is it, it's deep? so simple. Yeah, and it's yeah. just, it's not a hard thing to play, not a hard thing to figure out. And that was thrilling for me. But also, this story of this character. Now, my, I didn't totally relate to the character because my, my mom was really as out there as I was, or just <laughs> as wild as I was. Yeah. So it wasn't like the rebel, but I, I just felt like it was kind of like part of the, the tribe, just this, this, this storytelling aspect. Mm-hmm. of it just really kind of i felt like it was kind of my 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 people yeah the whole character yeah you're trying to be identified with that yeah now next you've got rod stewart and maggie may yeah now that that song you know people talk about hearing a song and they like immediately go back mm-hmm. to, i feel like every time i hear that song it it had it evoked a feeling that I had just don't remember feeling that. And again, it was the story. I mean, that very first line, you know, wake up, Maggie, think I've got something to say to you. It's like mm-hmm. right away. I want it. It's a story and I'm, I'm hooked. And there was just, there was nothing like it on the radio, mm-hmm. nothing at all like that on the radio with the mandolin. Yeah. And there was just something about it. And I was only 12, but it just seemed to capture the melancholy and the wistfulness and the confusion of being 12 years old that mm. I felt, I felt that in the song. Yeah, I can see that actually. There's some unusual lines in that song that kind of make you do a double take and go, hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I felt, I felt weird like with these songs because I felt like, God, I really should try to pick something current, but. I think there's something about 
formative years where music just kind of has a more, it just, it just, I guess it just sits inside of you for so long. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Over time, it just becomes more weighty. And it's not like there's not songs that I feel this way about that are more recent, but the ones that really have the weight have been there a long time. Well, I think that it has to do as well with the fact that when you're a kid, you're completely dialed into music. And when you're an yeah. adult, you, you have other concerns like the mortgage and everything else. But when you're a kid, you know, that, that was all yeah. that we had. That was all that I had too. And I, I just gave it my complete attention. And I think that it's, you know, music is, is very emblematic of childhood, I find. I think that the music that you're into as a young teenager and stuff, kind of, you never like really blow it off. Uh, Kenny Burrell version of Round Midnight. I'm not familiar with this one. He's a guitar player, Kenny Burrell is, right? Yeah. So in the 90s, when everybody else was like really into like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and grunge and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. I might have been, except I was instead I started getting enthralled by jazz. And it was like each person I discovered just like it was in I was enthralled. I had not felt that excited about music since I first found, you know, rock and roll or bubblegum pop on the radio or whatever whatever it was that I discovered yeah. or, you know, finding the Beatles or something. And so it was just like I was like having my mind blown constantly. Like, oh, like Miles Davis was my gateway wow. with um, kind of blue. That was yeah. the gateway. And um I was really lucky because I went to see Kenny Burrell play and he played Round Midnight and I'd heard like Monk's version and, but there was something about the way it sounds on the guitar. And so then I started seeking out other guitar versions like um, Wes Montgomery, I think has one. And Mm -hmm. there was just something about, and I I played it before I put it on the list to see if it still did it. And it did. I mean, I started, I started sobbing, not like sobbing, like I'm sad sobbing, but like the tears trickling down my cheek because of the beauty of it. Yeah. And there's not a lot of music that, that just does that, where it's so beautiful. I mean, I've, I've seen people that love classical music be like that, where they're just kind of just swept up in its beauty. This is one of the songs. It just, it just makes me, it's just beautiful to me. It goes right to my heart, right to my soul. That, that experience is, a, is a, an absolute privilege, isn't it? Yes, yes. And it's like, I, and I can't put into words why, why, you know, I don't know. It just does. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the band Triumph. Uh huh. I have. I've seen Triumph. They played in, in Austin. Oh, cool. So Rick Emmett is uh, the guitar player and singer in that band. And he, he's been on the show a number of times and, you know, he, he's taught music at universities and colleges. And so we got into that. Why do songs just make you cry? You know, as if not for the lyrics have reminded you of something, you know, sad that happened in your life. Sometimes chord progressions can make you cry, you know? So he mm-hmm. got into explaining the science of why, you know, you expect certain things and you expect songs to resolve on certain chords and that sort of thing. It's fascinating, but there's a whole science behind it, Kathy. It's really interesting. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not surprised by that. Mm-hmm. I think there's something that happens in the different cortexes of our brain. Oh, yeah. 
So next, you've got The Rolling Stones and Sympathy for the Devil. Now, in your book, I loved the story about how you met Keith Richards in a recording studio at two in the morning. And my, my favorite part of that mm-hmm. story was, was when he said to you, you said, can I go into the control room? Because Jimmy Page was in there recording solo overdubs for what would be one hit to the body. And you asked Keith if you could go in. And he looked at you and said, hey, why not? We're all in the same union. I loved that too. It's always like, I remember every single word he said, because each thing was like just the most perfect Keith Richard thing. It's like, it's just, yeah, he was like completely Keith, not a letdown in any respect (laughs) in any way. That's so great. (laughs) So sympathy for the devil. That was a hard one to put. Yeah. That was hard to pick a stone song, Mm. but I started thinking, well, if I could only pick one that summed them up, like just seemed to sum up, I lo- I would pick that one because for one thing, I love the, the I love the story. Again, I, I'm a lot of these are so much about a story. Mm-hmm. It's like a story, and I love touching on the different points in history. I love the syncopation of it, yep. and the way it kind of just does this repetitive circling around the chord progression, and then. Finally, it starts getting to this, like, it builds to the, you know, pleased to meet you, where it starts just kind of, it's almost like this release. And I just think if I had to pick one, even though in the book I write a lot about Exile being my favorite Stones record, and that's where I really got obsessed with them. This came out in 68 when I would have just been um, nine years old mm-hmm. and probably more into Tommy James. Uh, <laughs> in the Stones, but as I became more and more and more of a Stones fan, I think that song would be the one that just kind of, and you know, when they play it live, it's always mesmerizing. So that's why I picked it. Great, yeah, no, I love. There's so many to choose from with the Stones, and I, I myself am a, a huge Exile fan too. I think that's probably one of my favorite records in all of rock, actually. So tough decision for sure. Um, Me too. La- last one, Kathy. Sinead O'Connor and Nothing Compares to You. Yeah. As soon as I heard that song, and this is when I'm going to say it's all about the voice. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like everything she is comes out in her voice Mm -hmm. and it matches perfectly with the feel and the mood and it's perfectly produced and the way she just holds on to those words, you know, yeah. The word you just, she could, I feel like she could just sing, you could strip away everything and just have her go you. And I feel like that would be enough. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of feel like she kicked open the door in the same way that the Go-Go's did for the Bangles and other bands. I feel like she kicked in the door for, for bands like the Cranberries, you know? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think she's a fascinating person. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. Controversial for sure. I haven't heard much about her in the last little while, though. I don't know if you have. Um, no, I looked her up. You know, she'd had the melt, the mental health meltdowns, but you know, I just I hope she's okay. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I haven't heard much. Yeah. Well, Kathy, that is the end of your song list. This has been a joy for me. I have to tell you, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it as well. I- I'm sorry I seemed a little disconcerted at first. I was like, I was looking at the December calendar. You know, I don't know if you have a map, but the calendars are kind of, I mean, one little swipe with your hand and you're on a different month. So 
<laughs> no worries at all. This is a lot of fun for me. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Well, I so enjoyed it. Be sure and let me know so I can share it with my people. Okay. Kathy, thank you so much. Take good thank care. You. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, the Go-Go's Kathy Ballantyne. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.